Hello and welcome to episode 10 of The Lawdown, a podcast brought to you by CM Murray. I am Sarah Chilton, a partner at CM Murray, and I'm here with Beth Hale, our partner and also our general counsel at CM Murray. So we have been just having a chat about some of the interesting things that we've seen in the news over the last couple of weeks. We have got a semi-sports special for you today. Uh, We're going to talk about three high-profile people who have, unfortunately for them, lost their jobs over the last couple of weeks for a variety of different reasons. And we just thought they were quite interesting. Not all of them are, in fact, employees, but nevertheless, it really brought to mind in our thoughts some of the issues that employers and employees might face in dealing with potential misconduct or accusations of other wrongdoing in the workplace. So the first person we wanted to talk about is a very recent development in the UK and it is the very high profile sacking of the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson. He was dismissed by the Prime Minister Theresa May over an alleged breach of national security. So he allegedly leaked confidential national security information and he was pretty quickly sacked as a result of that. Now what that means in the UK Parliament is that he actually remains an MP and he still retains his seat as an MP representing his constituency but he has been sacked as Defence Secretary which was the role he's had. We ought to say that he denies the allegations. Yes he does deny the allegations and in fact has very strongly denied the allegations. Yes I think he went so far as to swear on his children's lives that he hadn't leaked the information. And it's anticipated as well that he's going to and he may well have done this by the time this episode comes out or by the time you're listening to it but he's rumoured to be planning to make quite quite a powerful speech about this, which some people are saying might bring down Theresa May. So one of the things that has obviously been flagged, I think I've seen a little bit on Twitter, is people wondering whether or not he would have an unfair dismissal claim because he was dismissed pretty promptly after the allegations came to light. And therefore people have been querying whether or not he might have that sort of claim. Now, it's important to think that he's not an employee. So um, that's one thing to bear in mind. So Beth, Can you tell us a little bit more about, I suppose, first of all, would he have an unfair dismissal claim? And then secondly, if this was an employee situation, albeit it's not, would this sort of process that's been carried out be okay for an employer to do if they were going to sack somebody? Yeah, so I think, as you say, the first thing to bear in mind about this is that members of the cabinet are not employees. And so he won't have an unfair dismissal claim that there's not much he can do about what's happened to him, apart from protest his innocence and and protest court of public opinion is quite powerful absolutely (laughs) but the other thing is that that made me think about is if if he were an employee what the obligations on the employer would be and what his main complaint has been well apart from the fact that he denies the allegations he says that the investigation has not been thorough enough Mm. it was it was too quick to reach a conclusion that it was him that leaked it as opposed to anyone else who was at the relevant meeting and that what he's saying is that if they think if they have the evidence, then they ought to be sending it to the police, and he would answer that allegation in a court of law. And so it just it's something that sometimes comes up in employment situations that you have an employee who's accused of a criminal offence or accused of some quite serious misconduct, and the employer has to work out how to deal with the interplay between the employment situation and the criminal situation. Mm-hmm. And also just sort of what the obligations are on an employer to carry out an investigation where there's suspected misconduct, whether that be criminal misconduct or not. One interesting thing with this, though, and and one of the key distinctions, I think, between what's happened here and what would typically happen in an employment situation is that the the kind of initial reaction an employer would take would typically be to suspend. Yes. And that's not what typically happens in 
Parliament, for example, no. you know, they have just gone straight to dismissal. And, you know, there are various different reasons as to why that might be more appropriate, or at least in, in the Prime Minister's view, more appropriate in the circumstances. But an employer would be expected to, I guess, pause, take thought. And to do that, they suspend to get that person out of the role immediately. That may not be so practicable in a um, situation yeah. with Defence Secretary, but that struck me as one thing. Yeah, and suspension is something different. we've talked a little bit about on, on the Law Down before, but I think it is often something that employers use as a sort of tool a delaying tactic to try and establish the full fact of the situation before they make a more permanent decision about dismissal but I think actually what's happened here is that there has been an investigation it's been very quick and Gavin Williamson Williamson says not thorough enough but it has been you know there has been an investigation which concluded that he was the person who had leaked the information and it's just important to remember that employers obligations in relation to suspected misconduct are to carry out a reasonable investigation and if they reasonably believe having carried out that reasonable investigation that the employee has committed the misconduct of which they're suspected then then it is open to them to then dismiss provided that misconduct is serious enough to to merit dismissal so it's all about reasonableness but really importantly employers don't have the same kind of standards expected of them as a court as a criminal court mm. would so they're not expected to prove beyond reasonable doubt that an employee is guilty of misconduct what they're expected to do is form a reasonable belief about whether that miscon- whether someone is guilty of that misconduct and it's quite a different test and the lines are getting i think in the media a bit blurred around what what the tests are that would apply to Gavin Williamson in these circumstances yeah i think it's been an interesting one to watch and I suppose the other thing that he doesn't have is a right of appeal. So as you say, he no, can absolutely. kick a fuss in the media, but he can't, unlike an employee, where an employee would always have a right of appeal. The other thing that made me think about was what how employers react to breaches of confidential mm. information leaks and that sort of thing. And it's obviously something that is applicable both in employment and in um, something like an MP situation, is where someone leaks confidential information, that is potentially a very serious matter. And it doesn't have to be national security secrets. An employer, no, so obviously here you're you, dealing with a potential yeah. breach of the Official Secrets Act, but yeah. actually if an employer suspects an employee of having leaked some confidential information which could impact on their business... Yeah, then, then they are entitled is, to take action yeah, on that basis. Yeah, that is likely to be gross misconduct. And in fact, it's it's quite a serious issue when an employer e breaches confidentiality obligations to an employer, and particularly if that employee is a senior person or if it's a partner in an LP or partnership that can be a quite significant offence, if I can call it that, albeit not a criminal offence, and can entitle the employer to various different remedies, including remedies to potentially recover money already paid to the employee, yeah, senior employee and, or partner. And indeed injunction, yeah. employers and um, partnerships can go to court to get an injunctions to prevent further leaks of confidential information yeah. so if that if the leak is damaging to the employer then yeah. it can be a really serious matter it will be interesting to see how he reacts because obviously he doesn't have the same remedies available to him as an employee does albeit he hasn't lost his job altogether because he is still an mp yeah whether he'll well he loses some income because of to, his because yes. of his loss of cabinet position yeah. um, but there is a payment which i think cabinet um ministers get on termination which I understand he's also going to get which I think is about three months 
of his ministerial salary. Yeah, which is also interesting because if an employee was sacked for gross misconduct, they would not typically get no, any payment get unless there was a sort of claim yeah. brought and then there was a settlement yeah. as a result of it. But there would be no automatic payment made. No. And in fact, they wouldn't even typically get their notice pay if they were sacked no, for gross absolutely. misconduct. So that's quite a difference as yeah. well. But yes, let's see what happens. I um, await his potential speech with interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th- the next one we were going to talk about was also linked to potential criminal conduct. This comes into our sports uh, sports we're section. Moving on to we're sport. moving on to sport. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, the England cricketer Alex Hales, who has been removed from the England squad following the failure of a drugs test, and the allegation is not that he was taking any performance enhancing drugs, but that he was using cocaine recreationally, and as a result of that, he has been removed from the England setup, and that's given rise to all sorts of, you know, some people saying that's unfair, he's saying he's devastated, understandably. There were previous issues with Hales where he was caught in, he was um, caught up in a fight, mm. got involved in a fight, and so had previously been removed from, from yeah, there you go. had been removed from the England squad previously and then allowed back into the England squad, but now he's been removed again, having failed these drugs tests. And again, it's something that made me think about what employers do and what employers can and should be doing if they discover it's not that common for employees to have to do drugs testing in the workplace and actually it's becoming less and less common I would say I think it's pretty unusual it is quite interesting it's something that I've been looking at quite a a bit recently and there's a very much a sense from the medical profession when you talk to uh, occupational health specialists and addiction specialists in the medical profession about this that an employer should take a very caring approach to anyone who is using or abusing drugs on the basis that there may be some underlying issues related to that that have triggered that drug use Um, and that same goes for alcohol but actually what an employer can and can't do is a little bit more clear cut and that I don't think an employer has to legally be quite as caring and supportive as people might want them to be. Under the Equality Act, an addiction to, for example, a Class A drug is not a disability. So something no, like that's excluded from, yeah. the, from the definition of disability. So and there can be circumstances. So if, for example, someone is prescribed painkillers, let's say someone's prescribed opioid p- painkillers and develops an addiction because of that, then they may be disabled under the Equality Act because it's initially arisen from prescription of a uh, drug and administration of that drug. There may also be circumstances in which, for example, if someone is an alcoholic and then they develop cirrhosis of the liver, that cirrhosis of the liver may be a disability. And equally, looking at it you know, the other way around, if someone has an underlying disability which then causes them to develop a drug or alcohol addiction, then that underlying disability will still be protected. For example, if someone suffers from anxiety or depression, yes, and, and that's they a disability. use recreational drugs to, um, to but yeah, self-medicate that. It, it's interesting because there is, I think at the moment, a kind of, push from the medical profession or at least those who I've um, spoken to about this to be more caring as an employer uh, and to be more understanding of the fact that if someone is taking drugs there's often an underlying issue and that's often something that should be looked at from a caring health perspective rather than from a conduct perspective and there's a debate about whether or not these things should be treated as a capability issue which would be that someone is suffering from some sort of uh, ill health or whether this should be treated as a conduct issue and that someone is doing something bad so there's a, and I think a there's debate a, yeah I think it's reasonably clear cut that if someone comes into work under the influence of drugs and that has an impact on their or indeed under the influence mm-hmm. of alcohol has an impact on their ability to do their job 
that that is clearly a conduct issue. But that will not always justify dismissal. No, absolutely. There has been some case law which yeah. indicates that even if someone's under the influence, that doesn't necessarily warrant a summary dismissal. No, but that it would probably warrant some disciplinary, some yeah, some sanction, and that you know people can be sanctioned for being under the influence in their workplace. And there will be some circumstances in which it will warrant dismissal. For example, if they're a driver and they're drive, you know, they're doing something yeah. illegal, then that will. Obviously, Which but I think there's there's a slightly more blurred line where someone is taking recreational drugs out of the workplace. Mm. So you know they are taking cocaine on a night out on a Saturday. It's not having any impact on their ability to do their job. Can and should an employer intervene in that? And I think that's a diff- more difficult issue. I suppose the issue here probably spans two topics which is one is the the drug use but the other one is reputational damage Mm. and I suppose that person having a position of influence in society and you know I imagine if you were looking at that from the perspective of that person having an influence over young children for example and finding out that their uh, sporting idol was taking drugs then that might not be yeah and I think that's very much the view that the English cricket board has taken that you know he's a role model for young people and he ought to be setting the bar quite high in terms of his conduct and that doing things like getting in fights and taking cocaine albeit that doesn't necessarily impact on his ability to as a cricketer it does impact on how the cricket as a sport is seen yeah and I think that's true there are certain professions in which that would also be true law for one yeah I think there would be arguments to be had around sort of bringing the profession into disrepute if there are similar issues even if that conduct wasn't having an impact on on someone's ability to do their job but in other circumstances if someone is doing something in the privacy of their own home at the weekend when there's no reason for the employer to know anything about it and and it doesn't have any impact on reputation doesn't have any impact on their ability to do their job I think it's just the fact that they're doing something the employer doesn't approve of or doesn't like wouldn't give them grounds for yeah, there is that um, additional issue, though, if someone is committing a criminal offence and is convicted of that criminal offence, yes. lots of employment contracts will have something in there which says, if you are convicted of a criminal offence, we retain the right to terminate you. So there's an expectation, I think, in a lot of circumstances that if someone has a conviction for something, usually excluding driving offences, then they may lose their job as a result of that. But again, I think you know there will be some circumstances in which actually in, you know, the, the fact that they have a criminal offence for... Uh, you know, cannabis use. Does yeah. that is is that even if it says it in their contract, is that reason yeah. to dismiss them? I think it may be if there's a reputational risk and people and are going to find out. It depends on the job they do. But I think it, I think it's it's not always going to be a fair dismissal just because yeah. they've got a criminal conviction, even if it says it in their contract. And the other issue that this touches upon is drug testing mm. and whether or not an employer can drug test. The Information Commissioner's Office, who regulates sort of data protection issues in the UK. Um, their view is that it will be sort of exceptional circumstances that it will be justifiable to collect that type of sensitive personal information about an employee, but that there will be cases in which that's justified. So one that you flagged already is if someone is, for example, a driver. So where there's a health and safety issue, it may be justifiable to do random or regular drug testing or alcohol testing to ensure that people are fit to be able to actually do that job. You obviously do not want, as an employer, say, operating heavy machinery in a factory to have people under the influence of drugs or alcohol, which may affect the safety. Even if that's not... Even if they're not there directly under the influence, but, you know, if they've been the night before drinking yeah. heavily and whether that impacts on their ability to do to drive the next day. And yeah, and there's some interesting there's some interesting work done in South Africa, some studies done there about 
the, the number of people who would turn up to workplaces and their alcohol levels would be, say, over what we would consider to be the normal drink driving limit, but it was typically from the night before. Mm. And obviously in a certain job that doesn't affect people and from a health and safety perspective, but in certain jobs that might. Um, you know, if someone's wielding a massive cutting machine, for example, then you can imagine you don't particularly want someone who's technically over the legal driving limit operating that in the vicinity of others. So there may be circumstances in which drug and alcohol testing is justified. Also, that sort of looks at regular or random drug and alcohol testing as a sort of practice. There may also be circumstances in which one-off drug and alcohol testing is justified, although that will probably be quite rare. Partly because, you know, if you take a situation like someone turns up one day under the influence, then to arrange, even from a practical perspective, to arrange that drug and alcohol test for that day probably not going to be able to do that and get the consents in place and make the practical arrangements before that person is not under the influence yeah. anymore. So employers are expected to take a more subjective view and use their own assessment as to whether someone is or isn't under the mm. influence rather than necessarily have a scientific test done. But, you know, there will be circumstances in which it's acceptable. But things like breathalysers, you could, if you have the drivers, you could... Yeah, and I think that, that happens. And one other thing just to mention is the issue of consent. So employers would typically get the employee's consent that consent has to be capable of being withdrawn at any point by the employee um, in respect of the drug and alcohol testing but it's also not on its own sufficient so just because you get the consent of your whole workforce to subject themselves to a drug tests for example that employer will still need to go through an impact and risk assessment as to whether or not it's necessary and reasonable to do that and they need to, to look at what, what other legal basis they're relying on because in the employment relationship yeah. post gdpr consent yeah. is very difficult exactly. to rely on so actually if you're thinking of carrying out those kind of tests you want to be thinking about why Which what you're doing what you're doing with the information and why you need it health and safety you know yeah. if you've got health and safety reason it might be okay but if you don't you're very unlikely to be able to justify taking and retaining that sort of information so and lots, as with all of that kind of, of personal data why you need to think about why you've got it In what you're going to do with it yeah. why do you need it what you're going to use it for do you yeah. need to keep it but thinking about sort of reputational damage to a sports body brings us on to the final person we want to talk about yeah he's also um, lost his job he's also lost his job and this was an issue of, of reputational damage this is the case of israel falau who was an australian and waratahs which is a sydney rugby team player and he has been sacked because of comments he made in social media so it brings up two issues i think which is reputational damage to an employer but also social media use by employees and the comments he made on social media were quite extreme he said that drunks homosexuals adulterers liars fornicators thieves atheists and idolaters hell awaits you and he has basically sort of stood by his comments and he said, first and foremost, I live for God now. Whatever he wants me to do, I believe his plans for me are better than whatever I can think. If that's not to continue on playing, so be it. Um, and what was, a few interesting things struck me about this. One was the comments he made and kind of how that would play out in an employment situation. The other one was the fact that he was publicly you know, terminated. And the report that I read said that he either had to accept his sacking or face a code, a code of conduct hearing. One might expect that he would have a code of conduct hearing before he got sacked, which might be the normal way of doing things. You know, you have your trial, as it were, and yeah. then, then the outcome. But they sort of might have done it back to front, albeit don't know the exact detail. And the other one was, you know, the, the issue of 
religion and belief and harassment on that basis and that sort of thing which we see yeah, and it's and quite the, often intention. The, the sort of crossover and the difficulties and we've had a lot of cases in the UK around potential clash between religion and belief discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination yeah. and how employers can deal with yeah. that really difficult, it's really sensitive issue. Yeah. I should just add as well that he had been formally warned before about his social media use and he'd therefore failed to meet those expectations set out in a warning. So this was not a one-off event, which in an employment context would make a dismissal more justifiable if someone had previously been warned about one type of conduct and they repeated that same type of conduct. That would make it more likely that they would be terminated and that that termination would be fair. It was made clear to him that further posts like that would result in disciplinary action as it did. But social media, thinking about that for a minute, it's quite an interesting one where in the UK, certainly, I'm not sure what the Australian position is, but in the UK, if an employee makes social media posts that the employer doesn't like because they might damage the reputation of the employer, then the employer doesn't just have to say, I think this might damage my reputation. They actually have to show reputational damage for that, say, dismissal. Yeah, they have to show at least the scope for reputational damage because there was one case where some employees posted a video on YouTube and I think they were wearing company uniforms. Yeah, that's right. And the employer sacked them and said, you'll bring the company into disrepute. And actually, it went to the Employment Tribunal and turned out they'd had four views on YouTube. So the Employment Tribunal said, well, there isn't any reputational damage because no one knows about it. It's not public knowledge. So... So they actually have to have sort of evidence of the likely damage and the, the likelihood of that and the fact it's it's happened. Um, you can't just look at something and go, well, that might be reputationally damaging to me, mm. therefore I'm going to sack someone. So that's one one issue that, that I thought about. Obviously, in a, a situation, coming back to the Alex Hales situation as well, there's a slightly different perspective when someone is a public figure and there is obviously more likely reputational damage, but also it's about you know that person being a role model. Those issues could come into it as well. And There's also, I think, an in, a sort of internal management issue that, that if you might not focus on reputational damage, you might look at actually, you know, someone's been posting that kind of stuff on, on social media that their colleagues might have difficulties with and their colleagues yeah. might, so it's not external reputation, but it's sort of internal management that colleagues might say, I don't want to work with this person yeah. because they have this view about yeah. me and about my way of life yeah. and that, you know, that can be quite difficult to manage. Yeah, so. and certainly, you know, if someone said those things to someone in the workplace that might constitute harassment that might be unlawful yeah. on and it can, I mean, it, the grounds of multiple. And it could constitute harassment. Yeah. Uh, having been posted on the social media, yeah. that could still constitute yeah. harassment, although it's not in the workplace. I think yeah. it could directly in the workplace. I think there was scope for arguing that actually that creates an intimidating, intimidating environment for someone to work in. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, fair enough it, when it says, it ties into what we're just saying about addiction, because one of the people that he's um, criticising are, are drunks. Um, they obviously aren't, disabled strictly speaking under the equality act unless there's some other complicating reason but um he then goes on to mention homosexuals atheists you know so that the two of them certainly struck me as um either religion and belief discrimination or sexual orientation discrimination so there's certainly some protective characteristics there that he's um certainly yeah and criticized. then the, the sort of flip side of that is he would say well i hold these beliefs he because would. of my own religious beliefs and therefore you shouldn't discriminate against me because what you're doing is telling yeah. me that I can't hold the beliefs yeah. that I do hold. Which comes back to the tension that you mentioned, which mm. we've seen in case law in the UK. I suppose the most common one that I always get reminded of there is the case 
which involved the Christian registrar, um, registrar. who refused to carry out um, gay marriage, civil partnerships. It was actually civil partnerships because yes. it was before gay marriage yeah. was introduced. But and she was dismissed for breach of the council's equality yes. policies, essentially. And that was upheld all the way up to the Court of Appeal, saying that it was a fair dismissal and that it wasn't discrimination because she had not followed the, the very clear policies of the of the council yeah. Um, yeah. in refusing to do that. It's and a there's a similar case in relation to relate counsellors, a relate counsellor right. who refused to offer counselling to gay couples. Yeah. And similarly, that was held that the employer was justified in, in dismissing that person. Yeah. Yeah, so there's lots and lots of issues coming out of this one and, and I suppose the other two people that we've discussed today as well. I suppose the message for employers is that it's never quite as straightforward as it might look on the no, surface. Absolutely. And that even if someone looks like they've done something terrible, it doesn't necessarily mean you can just go ahead and sack them. Absolutely. And on the social media thing, what people often say is, on oh, my account was hacked. I don't think he said that. No, he didn't say that. But it is what employers often say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, he fully owned his yeah. comments. And, I mean, this is... The employment aspect of this is sort of uh, relatively small in that this has caused sort of worldwide consternation amongst people about his comments. But you know, he certainly hasn't tra- sought to deny them and I don't think um, has any intention of doing so. But, you know, e- even if we look back to Gavin Williamson, you know, if that was an employment situation, employers should just always pause, take stock, think about suspension, do a proper investigation. Knee-jerk reactions rarely end up well for employers. Absolutely. So that's the summary of our (laughs) advice today. Before we conclude this episode, we are conscious that we haven't done a tweet of the week for, well... We didn't do one in our last episode. We introduced it as a new feature. And that we don't do this weekly either, so so it's probably a bit of a misnomer. But anyway, there was one tweet that we thought, as employment lawyers, was quite entertaining last week, I think, and it caught my eye. And it was when an employment lawyer in a firm, I'm not sure if it was in a London office or outside of London... I think it was in the Cardiff office. Was it Cardiff? had to do a training presentation to colleagues and decided that, you know, to liven up the topic of employment law, he would wrap through... It was a wrap, wasn't it? It was a wrap, yeah. The whole of his training presentation, yeah. which got um, quite widely circulated on Twitter. He's probably now quite famous. I'd, I'd like to rapping. say it went viral, but I think it certainly went viral amongst the employment law yeah, community. Yeah, star. <laughs> little bubble. Yeah. But yeah, one for everyone, I think, to think about, you know, to spice up a training session. Well, maybe we should... About the law. Absolutely. Maybe anything. we should wrap the next law down. I think maybe we'll have to find a replacement for me for that <laughs> role, at least. I don't know what your rapping no, skills my rapping are like. skills are bad. Mine are terrible. Yeah. Um, Although our karaoke skills are good. Yeah, so we do, uh, we have a bit of a CMRE karaoke team going on, but we've not quite progressed from musical theatre to rapping no, quite yet. yet. Um, although I went to see Take That last night and added a few to our karaoke list. Oh, so, brilliant. Yeah. Can't wait. Got, got a few additions to that. <laughs> but don't worry, we won't be subjecting our Lord End listeners to any of our singing or rapping. <laughs> we will be back in a couple of weeks' time with our normal just Lord End chat. I think. Yes. We'll stick to talking for now. Um, if you have any comments about any of the stories we've spoken about or you have any questions about any of the topics or you want to suggest any cases for us to cover, then do let us know. You can email us at info at cm-murray.com. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.